everybody. This is Olu Dara, right out of Ann Arbor. This is the 88.3 WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I like it. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Michael McGriff is here in the studio. Um, welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, everyone, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, and we're taping the show on Friday, September 20th. Um, so we're coming to you from a morning time <laughs> but played in the afternoon <laughs> sweet and thanks for picking the songs for today's show you're welcome mike uh there um it's gonna it's gonna make the show even more cool it's gonna be amazing <laughs> it's gonna be you just stay tuned <laughs> for poems and songs and all the good stuff um mike mcgriff has to say we've got books on the table with us we've got home burial your latest out in 2012 with copper canyon press right and uh many thanks to tanya and kelly for sending the books our way and dismantling the hills um winner of the 2007 agnes lynch starrett poetry prize and and thanks to maria from the university of pittsburgh press for sending this one out and um i'm so glad that you have the sorrow gondola mike um could you tell us a little bit about the other book on the table sure this is um a book by tomas tronstromer the swedish poet um that he wrote or published in 1996 and this is a translation that i did with um an amazing ski racer and architect from Sweden, Michaela Grossel. And who's now in Utah? Uh, she's uh, back in Sweden oh, working she's... as an architect and oh. sort of uh, civil engineer, I guess. And how did you decide you wanted to do this, the translation of the Sorrow Gondola? And and it's from... Um, it's from uh, uh, Green, in, Green, Green Integer. Int yep. A great press. Yeah, they've been fantastic. Um, th this book has... Uh, this is an interesting book. It, Tomas uh, suffered from a stroke in 1990. And it left his uh, right side partially 
paralyzed and his speech uh, super super limited and so half the poems in here he wrote before his stroke and um then suffered his stroke and then he finished the book finished some of the poems and there's a poem in here called april and silence which is one of my favorite poems of all all time and so wanting to uh get closer to that poem i asked michaela if she would help me translate it and one one thing led to another and then five years later we were publishing this this book so when you had read it so you had read it in another translation mike but you felt like you wanted to actually learn more i don't somehow more deeply yeah absolutely I, I read it in um actually melena morling's uh translation that came out with uh, in the living and the dead um with eco press yeah with okay. Echo. Okay. and um and then uh, robin fulton had also translated it and Samuel Charter. So I had seen the the poem floating around and always, always loved it. It's an amazing piece. And it's kind of strange because then with each of those translations, there was something different about Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So is that why you sort Absolutely. of thought there's, I want to know more about what the... Yeah, I think real, so. Not um, real one. That doesn't. That I take back. I'd like to just take that back right now because the <laughs> translations are real, but they become something different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just wanted to try the poem on for myself and and see what it was all about. Since I had access to such a an amazing Swede, I thought, uh, you know, why not? <laughs> why not? Yeah. And then is that what also inspired you to start Tavern Books in Portland? No, that that's kind of sort of a different project. Um, Tavern Books is a, a small nonprofit publishing company that started with Carl Adamschick. Hi, and Carl. Hi, hello, Carl, from afar. Thanks for the books, Carl. <laughs> and we, in 2009, uh, we decided we would just give publishing a go on the premise that there were so many poetry books that were out of print that we kept talking about, but no one else had read, and no one else could buy unless they were willing to spend three hundred dollars at an antiquarian bookshop on a random poetry book. So uh, so those chances, like, it makes it slimmer and slimmer for absolutely. people getting some, yes. to some poems. <laughs> absolutely. Impossible. Um, so we published uh, David Wevel's Casual Ties, which is a book that came out in 1982 or three, and with the boutique press in Austin, Texas, which folded almost immediately afterwards. And it's an amazing book. Um, so that's that was the first book we... We published, and then we've published 24 or 5 since. And did you meet David Wevel during your time in Austin? I did, yeah. He was amazing. He was a professor I took a couple classes from, but got to know mostly just hanging out in his office. And, and talking. Talking and listening to old vinyl recordings of Ezra Pound reading the P's and Cantos and talking uh, about poetry and translation. It was wonderful. It was oh, great. Oh, wow. That, sound, that does kind of sound a bit life-changing. So you started this poetry and translation conversation with him. Absolutely. Yeah. And he had translated um, a book in the Penguin um, Modern European Poetry Series in the 70s mm-hmm. of um, the Hungarian poet uh, Ferenc Juhasz. And so we had we had this sort of I'm obsessed with these penguin books, and so we had this great great sort of penguin geek out every week, um, David and I, and so we've, we've become fast fast friends, and we've stayed we've stayed friends. And you've dedicated one of the um, I almost said songs, but one of the poems in Home Burial. To I did, David. yeah. This this long poem, The Cow, which um, da- David's writing is is I think so amazing, and and one of the things he's obsessed with is the sort of Oh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it—the cyclical nature of, you know, meditative art—and he he comes back to these sorts of themes in a lot of his writing. And so, when I was writing this uh, poem, this long poem, "The Cow," I noticed that I was doing this sort of meta 
you know, circular, circular thing. So I thought, well, this is a great way to honor a, honor a friend, you know, de- dedicate a poem to him. Yeah. So that's where that came from. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was wonderful because I think the other poem dedication is to, to Britta, your wife, who's also a poet. That's and, right. And, yeah. And then, and then David. So I was like, interesting. And I, so I thought he must have been someone who also like maybe a, maybe a mentor uh, in some ways. David. For, oh, a, absolutely. A po- for poetry. sure. Yeah. For sure. And now he's got the cow <laughs> and yeah, to prove yeah. it. All but, those years yeah. of work, and then you just get one lousy poem dedicated to you. It's a long poem. Oh, a it is off. a longer poem. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, this is great. You know what? Before we get too much further, and I've, I'm going to read your short bio in the back of um, your, your latest poetry collection, Out with Copper Canyon Press, Home Burial. Um, Let's see. Michael McGriff was born and raised in Coos Bay, Oregon. His books include Dismantling the Hills, To Build My Shadow, A Fire, The Poetry and Translations of David Webble, and a co-translation of Thomas Trenstromer's The Sorrow Gondola. His poetry, translations, and essays have appeared in numerous publications. He's won numerous awards. He is the founding editor of Tavern Books, a publishing house devoted to poetry and translation, and the reviving of out-of-print books, um, which we were just talking about. What important work. And and also, speaking of Copper Canyon Press, part of their mission is to, and their promise to you as one of their poets, Mike, is that they always, as long as they are around, um, will have your books always in print. I, I think that's the case. That's right. Um, yeah, they've been a great press, and I, I love the uh, I love the work they do, and I'm so honored to be in their catalog, for sure. Ah, it's a lovely book. Thanks. It's a lovely book. Um, okay, so, Mike, let's talk about the one of your numerous words was the, um, an NEA grant, and I was struck by your artist statement, on this, I loved that because you were talking their spiritual support, like with with um, people who are the friends and your community of writers and mentors. Right. And then there's financial support, and and I I, I really liked how you said this is not just a feather in the cap because this is. It would, why don't I let you say what you said? Sure. Well, I can't I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember um, having to write this uh, statement for the for the National Endowment for the Arts and thinking well beyond getting a paycheck which is great you know you really have to you really have to use that funding to get some work done and because it goes so fast and i was so i was so grateful for it when i when i got the uh, got the grant so that was my sentiment i was like well i've got all the friends and books i could ever want in the poetry world but having time off to get work done is another thing entirely so it was a i suppose that's where that came from yeah and and it and a yeah, a gift, and um, and then it's great because then you're giving the poems back. So I guess um, there's some that's some cyclical nature to that art, <laughs> right? Perfect. Um, <laughs> well, when did you start writing, Mike? Because were you a wee lad when you started writing in Coos Bay, Oregon? No, not at all. I was I was uh, I d- really didn't read any books until I was in community college, which I just sort of stumbled into as a way to break up, you know, working working a job. And uh, I ended up, by some random event, taking some writing classes um, because I, I was forced to. Um, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Some random event, yeah. aka it was the one, requirement. Yeah, that's right. Well, the best thing that ever happened to me was um, working on this literary journal in, um, in community college called The Beacon at Southwestern Oregon Community College. And 
Um, a classmate in high school's uh, father ran the magazine and is an act of kindness offered me a position on it. And I was the least qualified person in the universe to work this job because I was totally illiterate. And um, But I had to take these poetry classes uh, as part of it. You need to take all these genre writing workshops. And I hated it. I hated poetry so much. And um, one day he brought in all of these uh, Neruda poems for people to read. And I totally uh, fell in love with Neruda's work. And was it like the Book life. of Questions, or was it the? Um, I think it was. Um, um, I think it was a Bly translation or of Walking the poem Walking Around. Uh, I think which is from. Oh gosh, Residence on Earth, I believe the book. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I was hooked. I s- <laughs> saw myself in the work. You know, the ocean and the. You know, sort of, you know, there's a barbershop in the poem, just sort of day-to-day stuff. And I always assumed poetry was sort of an out-of-reach genre for, you know, symbol seekers and essay writers. Um, And then here I saw something completely different and completely attainable and accessible and, and also strange and lyrical and surreal. So it really had a lot of appeal to me. So I'm just sort of accidentally happened across some you know, Chilean poetry when I was 19. Uh, yeah, and it blew your mind. It and did, that changed absolutely. Everything. For sure. And so you were on that journal for a while, and then did it change how you saw other people's poems then? Or I guess, yeah, because this happened. Did you immediately start writing, Mike? Or did you just read all the Neruda you could get your hands on? Or Well, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. I remember feeling, uh, feeling like it would be a great and cool thing to call yourself a writer. And... You know, but I'm sure I wasn't one. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So sure. Yeah, I was positive. <laughs> but, you know, I just kept doing it. And I, all I did was take creative writing classes instead of my requisite, you know, Spanish and history and all that. Because I was... You were following It would just seem passion. fun. Yeah. Well, or, or, I was, fun. or I was lazy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so I just took these easy classes. But they just kept being so intriguing. And I loved them and loved them. And... Just kept taking them in college when I went to the University of Oregon and, you know, at some point became a dedicated writer, you know. So I'm not sure. At some point. I I don't know. It was probably when I was, I don't know, 20, 22 or so, you know, I just said, this is it. This is what I'm doing. So Hmm. there's no going back. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll and we'll go forward <laughs> with Mike McGriff today on Living Writers, his books on the table, Home Burial, Dismantling the Hills, and his translation of Transtromer, The Sorrow Gondola. We'll be right back. I could be holding you tonight. I could quit doing wrong and start doing right. You don't care about what I think Think I'll just stay here and drink Hey, putting you down won't square the deal At least you know the way I feel Hey, take all the money in the bank Think I'd just stay here and break Hey, listen close and you can hear That loud jukebox playing in my ear Ain't no woman gonna change the way I think 
think I'd just stay here and drink. Yes, sir. You're just tuning in. Glad you did. Um, today on the program, Michael McGriff is here. Um, his book's Home Burial out last year with Copper Canyon Press. Um, got that on the table and Dismantling the Hills as well. Um, Mike, thanks for p- picking a little of the Merle Haggard. You're um, so welcome. To- <laughs> As soon as I mentioned the broken spoke, that's the first words that came out of your mouth. <laughs> Have you seen him there at the the broken spoke? Or, no, never, or, never. I mean, I g- grew up loving Merle Haggard, and um, so you know, it's Merle Haggard. Who doesn't love Merle Haggard? We see like on, the, on the radio as you were driving around. No, um, my um, my family loves country music. I grew up. My grandmother was a huge country music buff, so this is the soundtrack of my childhood. Ah. Uh-huh. I feel like I just read a poem of yours with your grandmother in it um, just just last night. <laughs> I don't think you said Merle Haggard Lover in yeah, the poem. No, I don't think it made it in. It wasn't, yeah, maybe in the, the, the third collection. Perfect. That might be. <laughs> um, well, Mike, just before we took that short break, you had mentioned, like, uh, I think at 22, that's when you sort of decided to be a dedicated writer. So what does that mean like to you when you say that, like dedicated writer? Because at 19 you said, no, this, uh, uh-uh, and then there was a two-year transformation. I guess, I'm not sure. You know, it's all sort of a gray area, but I remember thinking being, you know, who doesn't want to be a writer? Everyone wants to be some sort of great novelist writing on a endless scroll and, you know, doing drugs and being, like being glamorous like Jack Kerouac. But, um, glamorous and sweaty. Yeah. And that's right. <laughs> As he types. <laughs> and, um, but at some point I just thought, well, this is, uh, this is something I love to do and I don't love anything more than this. So that's, that's all, that's all there is to it. And that happened, you know, sometime in my early twenties and it became less of a fancy and more, more of, I just you don't want to sound like some wavy gravy hippie, but you know some sort of calling or something, some some sort of uh, some sort of life, uh, some sort of way of living, you know, reading and writing. So that's that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's taken you um, from then from Coos Bay and then to the University of Oregon, then to the University of Texas at Austin, uh-huh. and then Stanford. Right. And so, and now back to Austin to teach. Yeah, yeah. I'm really lucky to be a visiting writer at the Missioner Center this semester, which is uh, sort of a funny, funny job to be on the other side of the <laughs> other side of the ball, you know, as the someone who's supposed to say something smart about creative writing and 
help people with their work. <laughs> it's great. I, I don't love know it. if I were laughing. I mean, I know you're doing that on a day-to-day basis, Mike. I know you are. What, well, do you, are you ever um, getting out the, the, the album with Ezra Pound on it? Like David did, or like, are you... <laughs> no, but I've definitely taken... Or Red Fang, Yeah, yeah, lots of Red Fang in my class, uh, for sure. No, but I've de- definitely, you know, the thing I learned from lots of great teachers and my other friends is that, you know, you have to have a sense of poetry not being homework or an assignment or something that can be taken apart in the laboratory and put back together and packaged. So I love that sense of the organic and, you know, reading work that excites me to my students and asking them to bring in work that excites them to read to the class and just to have a conversation and view my role as a teacher as more of just someone who is a lover of the work and who wants to have a conversation about it. And I think a lot of good can come from that conversation. So I love being in the classroom. I, I didn't know if I would like to be a teacher, you know, in the beginning, but I had a lucky experience to be a teacher at um, Stanford. I taught undergraduate school there for a couple of years, um, poetry classes, which I loved. And since then I've you know taught at Wichita State and now at, um, at Texas. So it's great. I love it. And how is, are you also able to be producing new poems or do you sort of do it at different times? Mike, what's your process like? Let's talk. Oh, process. my process is really sloppy. Um, <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm always getting some writing done in my notebook, but I mean, I don't have any sort of, you know, I don't wake up at five and do Pilates and then work for an hour. You know, it's just whenever, it, whenever I can squeeze it in, I do. And I'm always reading and because your Coos Bay's writing. roots would be like. No, Mike, you yeah. cannot do your Pilates yeah. in the morning. And do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, Pilates-free zone. Um, yeah, so, no, I don't have I don't have any sort of work. Uh, I mean, I have a work ethic, but I don't have a schedule or a pattern or any superstitions. But you're always writing in your notebook. And so For does sure. that mean like a, a, like a real paper notebook? A real paper notebook. Absolutely. Old school. <laughs> That's real. One. I had this amazing student, uh, Zubair Ahmed, whose first book just came out with McSweeney's. And he was a, a total, he is a total genius. And he, he was always um, emailing me new work. And, and he, he wrote all of his poems on his iPhone. And he invented some sort of, you know, personal app for himself where he could dash out these poems in between building robots and, you know, solar powered vehicles. <laughs> in the engineering lab it was maddening i couldn't believe that anyone could work like that it was great it's true well sometimes when i i say to my students you know look you have your writer's notebooks but once no one had any paper and like this first <laughs> class and so people were writing i, I said okay use your phones and <laughs> writing a poem on their phones the dawn of was, the robots yeah it's the end. notes yeah <laughs> But it seems weird because I think like if you do it one way, you think, well, how do you take these fragments? Like, how do you see them? But I guess people just see them in a different way then. Like if that's the way you're used to. Sure. Whether it's in a, on paper or in an, an, a genius invented app or just a notepad <laughs> on your phone. Right. Right. Yeah. I just think, the you know, the thing is, is if you're not, if you're not writing, you're not going to get any good writing done. You can't sit around and will it into existence you know i really think that things come from the process of just having a place where you can write anything down and for me i mean i found that to be true for myself so the notebook's just the the lab and everything else comes out of that at some later time and are you going back to the notebook like and looking at it and sure all the time absolutely it's got all sorts of things in there like you know spreads for football scores and you know 
instructions to get to the grocery store. You know? Oh, I'm so glad you said that. So it's not as if you have these different notebooks no. happening. Like it is not at all. There's fragments that could be. I mean, not that there aren't. There couldn't be a a grocery list in your. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. I, I love the notebook. I think it's great. I think well, I was talking to an undergraduate class yesterday and um, of like intro to creative writing, and we were talking about. Um, the process of writing and I was telling this anecdote um, about being in a class with Dennis Johnson the uh, story writer and and poet novelist um, who I totally admire and and he he was talking about having to he was saying that it's essential for the writer to have a space where the rule is is that there are no rules in this one place you can write anything down and you're you're not accountable for it it's just a total place of experimentation and there's no pressure and it's something that is um the really sort of blew my mind even though it's yeah. the most simple sort of thing to say but hearing it from someone whose work you admire really it made me change my mind about about being productive and in, in that way and not being so sacred feeling about getting work done with a capital w you know and and since then it's really helped my writing a lot just have, having that permission to have a place where it doesn't matter what the hell goes in there it's just and w- what comes out at a later time and what do you, do you find yourself like, yeah, how does it change? Can you, are you able to talk about like what then it, what you are observing or what you feel like, right, you know, like writing down there? I don't know. I think it's just a way of thinking about writing is it's, it's not, it's not a, you're not waiting around for a lightning bolt. You're just working through ideas and getting things down and. And and having faith that that, that process is is going to be lead lead to greater greater things and just you know waiting for something to happen, which is just not a way to work <laughs> yeah. for for me at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think for the last um, few minutes, I mean, wor- the I, like the work, like calling it work instead of writing to or but in but but you also were clear about it's not something that's an assign it's it's assigned to you it's something that you want right i think yeah for sure yeah N- no one's telling me to write a poem i mean i just have to do it on my own <laughs> yeah exactly I, d- I wish i had a boss i would like no one's necessarily waiting for it no no one cares i mean that's that's the thing that i think that's really um you know so much writing happens in a school you know you you either an undergraduate student or an mfa student you know or whatever and or you have a writing group you meet with but mostly you don't mostly you have nobody and the universe just really doesn't care if you're working on something and i think you have to develop a way to keep going you know lots of people love writing but not a lot of people do it and I don't know. It's a matter of just tricking yourself into getting things done and feeling like you have a place where you can do anything lets you work every day without pressure. Yeah. And at any time. Sure. Because the rule is you don't have to have a certain time or a certain desk or (laughs) a certain way the light is breaking across the room. I mean, doesn't that sound really great, though? I love that. I love that idea. Well, we're all there in some places. (laughs) There's been a moment that it's it's worked. Uh, Hey, Mike, well, you you mentioned that there was a poem that you loved in the Sorrow Gondola. Um, Sure. Could you read that for us? You bet. Um, This is um, the, the poem I was talking about, April in Silence. And I'll read this poem and say say a few words about it. Um, April in silence. Spring lies deserted. The velvet dark ditch crawls by my side without reflections. 
All that shines are yellow flowers. I'm carried in my shadow like a violin in its black case. The only thing I want to say gleams out of reach like the silver in a pawn shop. So this is the first book in Tomas Tronstromer's Sorrow Gondola. And the thing that I, I mean, I love this poem for lots of reasons, but something that's super spooky to me is this is the poem he wrote before his stroke. And he's saying, all I want to say gleams out of reach like of the reach. silver in a, in, in a pawn shop. And I, I love this sentiment as, you know, being a writer, someone who's trying to bring some meaning through language to an experience. But it's just such a, it's an amazing thing in the context of his life, you know. I don't know if it's some sort of cosmic foreshadowing or not, but mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. It's just um, reading that poem in, in this book is just, it's so, um, so kind of amazing. But but that's the poem. That's the poem that tripped me into thinking, why not? Why can't I be one of his translators? You know, why, why couldn't anybody, you know? Why not? Yeah. I love that. It's been great. It's been, it's been one of the greatest things that's happened to me as a writer, for sure, is getting to know Tomas and his family and working on these poems in the Swedish. And so, so you know, you have a, a, like a correspondence with him. Oh, so. for sure. Yeah. Well, no, it's not a given necessarily, right? But that could be part of a translator's experience, and it is yours. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been really, really lucky um, to have uh, gone to Sweden several times and worked with um, um, Monika Tronstromer and uh, his wife, um, who basically reads his mind and speaks for him in this most amazing, loving way. And uh, several Swedish writers who I've gotten to know over the years um, have helped me tremendously and. And then Robert Bly, who I met by total accident. He's also a good friend. Thank yeah, he's a, a longtime friend of um, Tomas and his family. Uh, he helped me tremendously on the final draft of this uh, book. Huh. So he was uh, happened to be a visiting writer at Stanford when I was there. Oh, how and lucky, lucky happenstance. It was great. I had just come back from Sweden and um, ran into Robert in the hallway. And he van Boland uh, said, oh, Michael, Robert, you should... You should uh, You've got to talk. You, you should got, you've got to talk. You know, you've, you've got this great mutual friend. And um, so I spent a lot of time with Robert Bly, which was totally amazing. It was wonderful. And, and he poured over this manuscript probably 10 times, you know, every word, every line, every poem. And he, he was so insightful. That's like a, that's a compatriot in poems. Right yeah, there. absolutely. It was amazing. It was a great experience. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back to talk more with Michael McGriff, his books on the table, Home Burial, Dismantling the Hills, and his translation of Transtromer, The Sorrow Gondola. Thanks to Stephanie Engineering, and we'll be right back.
ghost on the empty road I think the stars are just the neon lights Shining through the dance floor Shining through the dance floor Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Michael McGriff is here. Um, Mike, thanks again for picking the songs. That You're was, so welcome. That was, a, that was a lovely one. This is your personal soundtrack for today. This is my today. personal soundtrack for the day. <laughs> yeah. That was um, uh, Jason Molina, the late, the late Jason Molina, who we just heard, who I, is an artist I totally love and admire. Is he in an epigraph in Yeah, I use, um, I use an epigraph to start home burial. Um, oh, would, would you like to... Sure. It, it says, um, here comes midnight with the dead moon in its jaws, which is from um, the first track on uh, songs, Ohio, um, album called Magnolia Electric Company, from the song Farewell Transmission, which I totally love. And and so this and you use it as um, to to start your book. It starts the frame. book. Yeah, yeah, I love I love that um, I, I I love Jason Molina's writing so much. I think he's a total total genius. It's such a loss uh, that he's he's gone. But but he you know he, his songs are so wonderful. He's got all this sort of you know he's made this lyrical mythology of um, you know the American landscape, and uh, I, I just think he's a I don't know. He's someone I turn to a lot to get, you know, I don't know, inspiration from is someone who's dealing with landscape and people and places and American like, tropes and those sorts of things. Like you, Mike. <laughs> I guess. Could, would you mind reading one of the poems? From, uh, no, not at all. Um, I will read you this poem called Catfish, which is early on in the book. And there's nothing really to know about this piece um, other than there's lots of uh, sort of hillbilly and lore about what catfish eat and what works and you know some people are like you've got to use canned beans or pig lard or gizzards or you know all sorts of you know diesel soaked popcorn I mean it's just the truth is, is catfish will eat most anything if you drop it down and are patient and, um, and of course um, you catch them catch them at night um, so this is the poem Catfish from Home Burial. The catfish have the night, but I have patience and a bucket of chicken guts. I have canned corn and shad blood, and have nothing better to do than listen to the water's riffled dark spill into the deep eddy where 39 Ford Coop rests in the muck bottom. The dare growing up to swim down with pliers for the license plates, corpse bones, a little chrome. But even on the clearest days, even when the river runs low and clean, you can't see it, though you can often nearly see the movement of hair. I used to move through my days as someone agreeable to all the gears clicking in the world. I was a big, clumsy yes tugged around by its collar. Yes to the mill, yes to the rain, yes to what passed for fistfights and sex, yes to all the pine boards of thought waiting around for the hammer. The catfish have the night and ancient gear oil for blood. They have a kind of greased demeanor and wet electricity that you can never boil out of them. The catfish have the night, but I have the kind of patience born of indifference and hate. Maybe the river and I share this. Maybe the obvious moon that bobs near the lip of the eddy is really a pocket watch, having finally made its way downstream from what must have been a serious accident. The station wagon and its family busting the guardrail, 
the steering wheel jumping into the man's chest, his pocket watch hurtling through the windshield and into the river. Wind the hands in one direction and see into the exact moment of your death. Wind them the other way and see all the tiny ways you've already died. I'm going to put this in my breast pocket just as it is, metal heart that will catch the stray bullet in its teeth. I chum the water, I thread the barb, I feel something move in the dark. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. So why'd you pick that one to read first? Um, I, I don't know. I think it's sort of a good uh, entry point for the book. You know, it's set, set in my sort of home landscape, rural Oregon, um, where I grew up. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's the kind of poem that I was really excited to write um, that ended up being in this book. It was a little more drifty and lyrical. Um, maybe elliptical than some of the stuff in my first collection. And it was one of the poems that, that kind of felt like a breakthrough poem or something when I was writing it. It just seemed seemed like a poem I was excited about. And it's something that happened m- maybe early on in this collection. And so it's a poem I, I when think about ch- fondly. And when something changed for you. It seems yeah, like I think so. I just, you know, it's funny. You write a first book and it's sort of everything you've ever tried to do leading up to some point. So it's really a sort of record of the time where you were, you didn't know anything and had never read any books up to the point where you wrote one. And the second book is totally different. I've read hundreds and hundreds of books sent between the two books and my idea about poetry is totally different. And, um, so it's an interesting thing to have more than to keep going, to have more than one book and to see, see what happens to your own work. And was is it also safe to say with dismantling the hills that was over, like a, a like not only a different time in your life as like maybe your beginnings or so, but a longer time. And then home burial is a more compressed time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, dismantling the hills is the the book that you know I published it when I was thirty, but it probably you know in some way it took thirty years to write it, and you know the, the next book took four or five years to to write totally different experience it's mystifying and i often wonder how you know writers like charles Wright or philip levine who have 15 or more books what that what that must be like to to keep going and how how you must either want to do more of the same or do something different or do something better or maybe at some point you feel like you're not the writer you used to be or you know i don't know I I look may it happen to us all. <laughs> well, I guess like in Catfish, uh, you can turn the watch forward, but maybe not all the way to the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> but for example, in that poem, when when I was reading it, I I did like it's interesting. Like I, I really I liked the the with the car with the Ford coupe, um, where at first it's like used in this totally different way for what it means to you when you were growing up as and young and then when you were thinking about like the accident that maybe put it there like much later on in the poem and and then that there's like time moving and then yeah and it i think then an imaginary you don't find his pocket watch i maybe not right or the narrator doesn't and yeah it's yet, just this it's uh, there right r- this imagined mystery for sure you, you know that that poem i think owes a lot of its um sort of poetry logic to the poems of larry levis um yeah. where he, he has this amazing ability um to you know say 
you know, the moon is a car. So he starts off with this, you know, very simple metaphor. And then he says, the moon is a car driving through the night. And the wife gets out of the passenger seat and walks into the house and goes in and plays backgammon for five hours and watches sports center. And, you know, (laughs) and all of a sudden you're in the narrative of this character, but really it's just a simile for, or a metaphor for something else like the moon. And and that's something I've, totally appropriated for myself I, I love that movement that he's able to do with the image and metaphor um so i think that is definitely behind the architecture of this this piece yes and so that's interesting so that was one of the the people larry levis was someone who you read in this time oh that for sure printed and then you absorb like the movements and right I, the possibilities i love his work he, he is one of my absolute favorite contemporary poets so I can't I can't say enough good things about 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 his writing and he he's so interesting too because he doesn't he's so I mean I know he's a poet of extreme craft but he seems so organic and loose on the page and he seems he's so approachable yeah he's very accessible and he's also very surreal and drifty and it's, it's something I've always really it's something I loved about Neruda's writing. And um, Neruda is a very different kind of poet. You know, he just turns up the sur- the surreal knob, you know, and, you know, everything becomes a wash in the surreal, whether it's, you know, partisan politics or, you know, you know, sexual desire or describing a beautiful mountaintop or something. And and I just, I love the intensity of Neruda and I, and I also love the intensity of Levis, but his intensity is just somehow different. He's very, his intensity is just kind of, exploratory and elliptical and he does it through the image and through this strange simile and metaphor making so he's the he's the poet he's the poem he's the poet for me yeah in, the, in this moment ah uh. uh, yeah i love that i love that um uh, mike um it's interesting because it, it seems so like with dismantling the hills um this uh, the the place, the landscape, the people, right? Um, and then it seems like um, for home burial, I think in that same NEA th- statement, you had said, like, I'm working my second collect- collection is landscape with origins. Uh-huh. So what happened? Because that, so that was a working title, obviously, right. and it became home burial. Is that something about what was happening also with the shift and with, with kind of that Larry Le- Levis element i mean I don't know, yeah 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 no i'm not really sure you know i remember i had this working title landscape with origins which i don't think is a very good title now but um at the time it was this long long poem and it was a book length manuscript and it had a couple different names and it ended up being quite a dud and but there were a few lines um and moments in the in the piece that i took out and that ended up being in some different poems in home burial so Landscape with Origins was really, I was I was I was under the spell um, of this wonderful poet A. R. Ammons, and you know I, he's got these long, great books, Sphere and uh, Tape for the Turn of the Year, uh, Garbage that I just totally love, and they're all stuck together with colons and you know instead <laughs> of periods, and you know it's just one long, wandery um, outpouring of yeah, talk genius. about drifty. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love it. So I, I really wanted to write something just like that. That was just connected together with interesting syntax and punctuation, and that was one long meditation. I don't know, you and know. That's what this this the landscape yeah. with origins. Oh, it was, was a wreck. It was a nightmare. Um, 
Uh, How did it resurface in home burial then? Like, what are the fragments that were... Well, luckily I had some nice friends, and I I remember showing the book to a few folks, and this great poet, Andy Grace, Andrew Grace, who I met out at Sanford, um, I showed him the book. It was called Fog instead of Landscape with Origins. So the title just kept getting Fog. worse. Fog. Oh, oh, so bad. <laughs> Smoke on the water. It was so bad. And... And Andy read it, and he took me out for a beer, and he's like, "Oh man, I don't know what to tell you. Like, this just isn't working. It's just, just this is just a, just a flop." But these, you've got these great lines, you know, these two or three moments out of this sixty pages of work, and I totally knew it. I knew it to be true. I just needed someone else to help me see it. And that light through the glass. Yeah, bummer. Good, good thing to have good friends. Uh, um, and and so, and so away went those bad titles and. You know, then came the work in, in this version of the book. And so there's always hope. And there's <laughs> always... <laughs> and comes time, comes advice. Right? Like, there's yeah, different... Sure. And being with it. Absolutely. And being able to laugh at the fog. Oh, man. What a Even flop. though it's true, though, too. Yeah. Fog is true. <laughs> yeah. Foggy idea. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was a pretty... That was good. But it was a nice... I think it's, you just never know what, um, you never know what's going to work. So you have to follow your, follow your path, I guess. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You've got Living Writers with Michael McGriff. We'll be back. back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel today on the program michael mcgriff is here um we've got his books home burial from copper canyon press and from the university of pittsburgh press dismantling the hills um mike you hold in your hand home burial (laughs) it's in my hands (laughs) so shall we hear a poem sure um i'll read this poem drinking at the rusted oyster drinking at the rusted oyster 
Whitecaps in the harbor, the color of a dead cow's eye, the moment it breaks its orbit from the skull. Trawlers buck against their moorings, and the afternoon has a voice like a woodshed full of dead lawn chairs, a voice like my mother's nail polish and my father's lottery tickets. All the tired arguments are wind ripped from the bones of salt, and we enter those arguments. I'm terrified of old acquaintances. I'm eating angels on horseback. I'm drinking a glass of light. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Um, so for for that poem, it's you're you are in the. It feels like the you're taking the reader to the landscape of Coos Bay again. Oh, for sure. Is it, yes. Okay. Every time I sit down to write something, that's all that comes out. So, and I'm sure that's. It's not really um, it's not really some sort of aesthetic or political choice as much as it's it's where I lived for the first twenty one years of my life, and I never really we never really went anywhere. So my images are all images of that place, and I think those years are when you don't move from a place. Those that's your imagination. Th- those are where the epic images are formed, and and they just keep keep popping on back. So I have to find a new way to <laughs> a new way to use them. Uh, but but. I love that that has the epic, epic images, and because now, as we've said during the course of even this this time together, you've, you're moving around, and you're in Sweden, which is a completely different landscape. Yeah, sure. You know, and and Milena was talking about that one pretty deeply, but but it's interesting this youth um, time. That's when you're maybe absorbing these. You're imagined. It was true for me. And and I wonder, you know, my wife is also a writer and, you know, she moved around to all these different states, you know, as a child and all over the West and she has no sense of place. And, you know, and when we talk about poetry together, it's just so interesting. Um, so different. Well, we just have a different, we have a different source to draw from. Her, her images are transient and mine are just go right back. They just go right back to my home, hometown. Over and over and over. And and do you feel like it's also something because this part of the world is changing? Because I know you said they're not intended to be political poems. Um, but I wonder in a way, just from looking closely and loving a place, if that doesn't, that maybe is disappearing in some way or is, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, you, you know, this is going to sound stupid to say, but, you know, I'm from uh, this town, Coos Bay, which is a logging town. And historic, I mean, it's a, it's a, the whole state is a timber products state. And, you know, it's all, I didn't, I didn't really know that different classes of people existed growing up because all I saw was blue collar, uh, life. And I remember going to the university of Oregon and being so, it was such culture shock to see people driving nice cars who were my age. And I remember calling my mom and saying, oh, my God, you would never believe the nice cars people drive, meaning maybe a five-year-old Honda Accord or something. And and so, I don't know. The landscape I write about is a working-class landscape. It's, you know, full of uh, sawmills and fishermen and, you know, people I grew up with. And um, not by design, but by accident, I think that is a becomes a political landscape as well i mean so it's a landscape formed by land politics and people with no health insurance and you know people living in trailer parks so i don't know i think it's just by just by the nature of the the place itself that the the writings ended up the way it is and to know it so well 
then you do it justice in some way. I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny, you know. It's I already think, in the book, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you can go. There's so many ways to go wrong, and I'm very aware of the sort of romanticizing about hard work or simple country people and these sorts of tropes. I don't think you're writing about simple people. (laughs) Right. Well, that's good. I hope not. Um, Well, what do people say when you go home? Oh, I don't know. I don't really see people when I go home. You know, I see my folks and, and, but, but I haven't kept in touch with anyone that I went to high school with. So it's a strange, it's a strange place to go back to. You know, it's the, the, I go back to the landscape. I go back to my parents and my sister who still lives there. But, um, but I don't really, you know, I don't go back and hang out with my old mates at the bar or anything. So I'm not really sure. It's a strange place. I think it's like anything. You can never go home, you know, as the saying goes. That's definitely been true for me in some way. And maybe in some way also it's you, you, you protecting the epic images that you have. I guess so. Oh, I've got to say, th- this is Charles Simic's great term, the epic image. This oh. is something I say, I use it all the time. I love it. I love his, he's got this great essay. Um, oh, I think it appeared in the, oh, some book review somewhere, but he talks about the epic, poets being as obsessed by the epic images and we all have our private stock of them. And that's where the, the art comes from. So th- thanks, <laughs> Charles Simic. Shout out to Charles <laughs> um, And you've got some new new poems on the table i do and is there a world premiere in the the sheaf (laughs) i guess so uh there's lots of poems that that are nowhere but this table um i'll read this poem it's called shooting possums from the back porch of rogers bar and i'll say one thing about this wonderful bar in goose bay called rogers zoo it's the only place you could go uh in town and just have a great beer and not feel like you're gonna get your teeth kicked in by some meth freak um but Rogers the only one. <laughs> yes, Rogers. Like, even in 2013. <laughs> so Rogers, or even more so. <laughs> right. That's right. So before Rogers Rogers Zoo has closed, so I wrote this poem. Oh. Shooting possums from the back porch of Rogers Bar. The bones in the possum's hand are a set of reduction gears turning in a machine that brings light to this valley of burnt oil and narrow rivers. My favorite drunks a few chairs away, laughing hard, forming a theory of everything. So these new poems I'm writing, they're all really short. This is sort of my, my latest experiment, is to write a really, really short sort of um, Giannis Ritzos-inspired uh, in poem, poem. So we'll see how they go. I'm really having a good time writing them. So was that something that you felt like, I'm going to write short? Or did you notice that the, the fragments stayed short or didn't? gather and connect or no i just um it's really from my reading life i i was i I have this favorite book um it's this uh, nico stangos translation of Giannis ritzos the greek poet his selected poems that came out in the 70s with penguin and it's just an amazing book yeah and uh, in that same series and i mean ritzos was a prolific poet he wrote all these you know you know long epic uh books but he also has many many volumes of short short poems and those are the poems I've been reading over the past probably three three years, just religiously over and over and over. So I think my, my poems are little Ritzos uh, attempts in some way. And it's something that whatever is for three years, it's something that you're inhabiting. Oh, I love it. I just, I love the short poem. Um, Tr- Charles Simic has this other um, great, great um, introduction. I think it's to a Novika Tadic book uh, where he talks about um, the religion of the short poem, 
as being one of these um, really old traditions as a in our modern culture is going back to the religion of the short poem and those having lots of staying power like the fragments of Sappho and, oh, and those sorts of things um, and it's something that I I just I love I love that idea that there's a separate it's whole, it's a whole separate beast than say you know a page long meditation or something it is so we'll see how it goes can we hear another one <laughs> sure oh they're like it's like um Eating Chex Mix or something. It takes yeah, two seconds. It's just what it's like. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, this poem is called Rail Yard. The rail yard draws an arrow to the edge of my country. The weeds exploding their colors around the empty terminal were once immigrants. They touched their foreheads together in another time. I can almost hear a table being set. A deck of cards slid across the crushed lip of its box. The memory of smoke hangs low in the valley, and though there are no trains, a few dogs run mad beside them through the tall, impossibly blue grass. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. This, it seems like there, it's interesting, because it, it sounds like there is, and maybe it's because you said the Ritzos and the, the so the Greek poetry, you know this, and working in translation as you do. But the, I feel like there's there's something also non-American, even though you're what you're touching about. It, like there's it's when you're reading like an anthology of international poetry or so, they're sometimes doing so many different things than what uh, Americans are doing. And I feel like those they can see that. Or hear it, rather. Yeah, maybe. You know, another uh, poet who I, I love is James Wright, and mm. and particularly from The Branch Will Not Break. And he's he, that's another book I read almost daily. And um, he's got those short lyrical, you know, sort mm. of poems influenced by all the translating and reading he did in the 60s and 70s. You know, the Spanish Surrealists and the French Surrealists and Transformer and huh. Gievic and everybody else that he and Bly were bringing into uh um into english you know through the 60 50s 60s and 70s press uh magazine that bly was working on so um he's a big influence I it's think. wonderful to have this large community of of people who are your compatriots living in gone yeah i think so you just, it's it's the bookshelf you know <laughs> those are those are your those are your that's the real mfa school is the uh the home bookshelf and who you go to daily absolutely so i'm always am amazed when people say they don't own books and they just check them out from the library i can't imagine that kind of life where you don't have books at hand so there yeah. i have a whole house full of books house full of books <laughs> um mike maybe one more one more poem to take us out sure you bet um this poem is called opening gambit um and perfect it, it, in my mind, at least, takes place in the south, southeastern Oregon. Opening Gambit. Two decommissioned highways cross and continue toward their borders with the casual certainty the dead carry in their sample cases. Leaning against the wind, I notice tufts of fur in the air in a drive shaft rising from the sand. Then the horsehair of a violinist bow drawn steadily across my neck. Thanks, Mike. Sure thing. You've been listening to Living Writers. Um, thanks for listening. And um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. Michael McGriff was today's guest. And thanks to Stephanie Engineering. All right. Until next time.
to his right, throwing in the end zone for Arrington, caught, touchdown Michigan. Takes the snap, looking to throw the near side, now he's going to go far, over the middle, he's got a man, caught, touchdown Michigan. Adrian Arrington wide open in the back of the end zone, over the middle, and Michigan marches right down the field, no problem, they have the lead again, it's 37-35, to 35. four wide receivers, T-bone and shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM, your home for Michigan sports.